Okay, John 15. I am the true vine, verse 1, and my father is the husbandman. And we are likened, verse 2, to the branches. Now, Jesus didn't say, I'm the trunk and you are the branches. He said, I am the vine. Now the vine is made up of the trunk and the branches, the whole thing. So I think what he's saying is that we have our place within, as Paul would put it, within the body of Christ. If we go out of the vine, if we dissociate ourselves from the rest of the branches, we are no longer part of the vine. And I think he has that in mind when he, he, he says that if we are severed from him, then we cannot bring forth fruit. Verse 4. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine, no more can you, except you abide in me. And the fruit that is brought forth is brought forth by our abiding within the vine. And he emphasizes this really strongly. He says that the, uh, the branch that brings forth fruit is purged, is cleansed, so that it brings forth more fruit. But there is no way that we can bring forth fruit by just going it alone. That, I think, is, is, his, is, is his point. Now, there is a, a growing tendency, I think, in, in the religious world, in the Christian world, and also within our own community, to be what is nicely called out-of-church Christians, to have some sort of set of problems with the community that we are in, and to sort of push off on our own and say, well, I still uh, believe and I do my good works and I bring forth fruit and uh, I can do that in some sort of splendid isolation. But the whole point is that you cannot. You absolutely cannot do that. You have got to abide in the vine. And Jesus is the vine. It's not that he's the trunk and we are branches all hanging on to him. He is the whole thing. And this is really quite a sober warning because... In my experience, people leave uh, ecclesias, churches, the, uh, the community of believers, not normally because they encounter some philosophy or some theology that is, is somehow better, but because of interpersonal conflict, because they can't stick the other branches. That's the problem. And... Unfortunately, that, although it might appear at the time to be understandable and legitimate to, to clear off on our own, in the end we cannot, and in the end we will not bring forth fruit. He says, verse 5, in the AV, without me, but the idea in the Greek is severed from me, you can do nothing. It's as if the Lord foresaw that this would be a tendency. And in Ephesians 4.16, we're told in different uh, metaphor that there's one body of Jesus, and that each part of that body is nourished and is given nurture by every other member of the body. Now, from that you see at least two things. You, you see that the total sin and error of cutting people off, because outside of the body of Jesus, they cannot be fruitful, they cannot be of him. And likewise, you see the, the huge problem for those who voluntarily walk out because of upset with, with other people. We have got to abide, not just in Christ personally, because Jesus personally, in that sense, is his body. This is the whole 
very powerful metaphor of Jesus being the body of Christ. That to be part of him means to be part of the community which is made up of believers who have been baptised into him. It's, I think, the tendency which there was, even under the Old Covenant, in Leviticus 17, 3 and 4, you've got this idea that there was a place for the worship of God, and that the person was to offer uh, sacrifice at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and not to go off and set up their own little shrine. That, I think, was the Old Testament equivalent of this. In chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, Jesus says, I've told you this so that you should not be offended or caused to stumble, because the time will come when they will put you out of the synagogues. It's as if Jesus realized that the whole process of being excommunicated, put out of a synagogue, even though the synagogue was not exactly the Ecclesia of Christ, the whole process of that, of putting out, was likely to cause people to stumble. And it's like when he cures the, the blind man, and then he hears that the man's been put out of the synagogue, and Jesus rushes to find him, as if he realizes that that process is likely to cause a person to stumble. And we have all seen this so many times. People put out of a community over minor issues, and then they are eventually, that they, they stumble and they lose their faith. They may not like to admit that, but that is how it happens. Now, of course, people would, would say, ah, yeah, but we just fellowship so-and-so and so-and-so, and it wasn't for minor issues. Well, from what I have seen in, in my uh, time in the body of Christ, it's very, very rare that somebody really needs to be put out. Uh, th these would be extreme cases of, of people who are are really uh, preying on uh, those within the community. And for the defence of the community, maybe uh, their involvement with the local community needs to be in some sense limited if they will not uh, stop it. But that's very, very rare. And the vast majority of times when somebody is told, you can't come here anymore, is usually connected with some form, from what I have seen, of guilt by association that we will not associate with you because you associate with others who are not in fellowship or what, whatever it might be. And Jesus' attitude is quite different because he, he says there that the time will come when they will put you out of the synagogues. Now, he clearly expected his people to remain within the synagogue system until such time as they were put out. He doesn't ask them to leave. I mean, in Acts 3, verse 1, you see Peter and John going up to pray in the temple at the ninth hour, along with everyone else. And it's no good saying, ah, oh, yeah, well, the Jews pretty well uh, understood uh, what we do. I mean, they, they didn't. You can see from the parable of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16 that they believed in hellfire, immortal soul, had a totally wrong idea of what the kingdom of God was going to be like. And most importantly, of course, the synagogue system did not believe in Jesus. Now, in James 2, verse 2, and James would appear to be one of the earliest, if not the earliest, of the letters, we see that he talks there about if somebody comes into your synagogue well-dressed and you have respect to that person, then, you know, you're wrong. 
you could infer from that that, in fact, they were continuing initially to attend the synagogue, and there's no condemnation of that. And Jesus here, as I say, clearly says that, you know, you wait for them to put you out. You preach the gospel about me, and, you know, they will put you out. So, I think this shows once and for all that the Lord was not fearful of any form of guilt by association. This is a, a false doctrine. It's one of, in practical terms, one of the most dangerous false doctrines, that we are somehow contaminated by communion with others. It's really not the case. And if only we can get that clear in our minds, all this talk about disfellowship and I'm, I'm not hanging around in here if so-and-so's here or whatever, that this is all primitive. This is all spiritual immaturity, and that's being mild about it. We need each other. Anyone who is properly baptized into the Lord Jesus is in the vine, is in the body, and we need them. And you remember what Paul says when he talks about the body, <clears throat> that those parts of the body that we consider to actually not be needful, they really are. And this is all part of the process of bringing forth fruit that it is actually designed by God that the set of people who you have around you in your uh, community or, of fellow believers, that they are designed by God to help you bring forth fruit, exactly because, maybe, of their immaturity and your need to be patient, to forgive, to tolerate, uh, etc. That's all what bringing forth fruit is about. Stomping off on your own is not going to be a way to bring forth spiritual fruit. And perhaps this needs to be emphasized in this internet generation where you can appear to some level uh, to sort of still be active within the body by not having anything to do with those around you and yet occasionally writing something on the internet. Com sort of communicating, fellowshipping just when is convenient and as is convenient to you. I'm not sure that is the way to bring forth spiritual fruit. Now, he goes on here, um, and he says in verse 2, um, <clears throat> that every branch that bears fruit, he uh, purges. But every branch that does not bear fruit, he takes away or cuts off. Notice, of course, that it's the Lord who cuts off, not us. Now, the Greek words that are translated uh, cut off or take away and the word translated to purge are very similar. In fact, they're pretty well the same word. Um, to, to, to cut off or to take away is the Greek word airein, A-I-R-E-I-N. And the, the verb that's used there for purging or trimming is kathairein. Same word with kath, K-A-T-H, in, in, in front of it. This is uh, what could be called a paranomasia. That is uh, a play on similar sounding verbs. Um, the point is that <coughs> the process of purging is very similar to that of cutting off. What does that mean? Because there's a difference in one sense. I think the similarity is in the sense that all those who are going to be in God's kingdom ultimately will have condemned themselves now. 
This is the whole point of 1 Corinthians 11, that if we would judge or condemn ourselves, and he says this in a breaking of bread context, we will not be judged or condemned. He's clearly talking about judgment in the sense of condemnation. Judging has uh, got quite a wide range of meaning, but I think he must be talking about condemnation because he says if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. It doesn't mean that we get out of <clears throat> the appearing of the Day of Judgment because we didn't judge. The idea is that we should not condemn, and therefore we will not be condemned. Uh, and likewise, if we would judge ourselves, if we would condemn ourselves, we will not be condemned. The flesh has to be condemned, and we need to do that in this life. And this is the whole point, I think, of the breaking of bread, that we are convicted by the message of the cross and by our reflection upon him there crucified for me the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, that we are led to realizing that I should be condemned. I should have done that that he did, but I did not. And I am far from that. And yet within the same uh, event of, of, of the crucifixion, there is coming out of the same vision, that, that the same picture, the same event, there is the tremendous assurance of forgiveness and ultimate salvation. And so we have to go through that, let ourselves go through that. And that is part of that purging process. It's almost done in that sense by us, uh, to ourselves. So talking about abiding in the vine, he says in verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. And I think the emphasis there is on the word you. You shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. But, you know, John's letters and his gospel are related, and First John 5.14 says that if we ask anything according to God's will, he hears us. Here, if his word abides in us, then we will ask according to our will, and we'll get it. The idea, I think, is that insofar as his word, and he's talking here about the word of the gospel, and perhaps John is alluding in the first instance to illiterate converts reciting the gospel of John to themselves, uh, and it abiding in them in that sense. Over time, our will becomes his will. Over time, we have a better experience of answered prayer. This is why in Psalm 119, where David in every verse is talking about God's word, he speaks of how God's word dwells in him, and because he keeps God's word, because God's word abides in him, therefore God hears his prayers. If you want the references in Psalm 119, it's verses 145, 164, 173. And so this is the way to uh, relationship with the Father. Incidentally, in, in verse 23, he's got this idea in mind. Sorry, that's uh, sorry, chapter 16, verse uh, verse 23. Whatever you shall ask the Father in my name, He will give it to you. And the Greek word translated there for asking. Yeah, it's been pointed out by Vine and, and others that it's an odd word that he chooses to use. It means asking an inferior to do something for a superior. 
and he says, we ask God in that sense. It's almost as if we're giving God the word of command to do something for us. Now, that's a scary thought, but I think that is what can happen if our will and God's will become merged. Job 22, verse 28 says that if we have a good conscience with God, you shall ask, sorry, you shall decree a thing in prayer, and it shall be established unto you. You look at the way Jesus prayed, and indeed the way Moses prayed. Um, there wasn't a lot of fumbling around about, if it's your will, if it's your will, they speak, and Elijah is another example, uh, let there be no rain, and according to my word, um, there isn't any rain, it's done. Take Psalm 122, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, peace be within your walls, I, I will now say, peace be within you. And yet, we're to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, and yet, the psalmist speaks as if, well, I've sort of decreed it. It's a scary idea when you first come to it, that we can be that close, that in touch with the Lord. But that is, I think, the process of spiritual growth. So then, this idea of the vine, I think, uh, continues of us being in the vine. Verse 8, Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Now, often in John, our bearing fruit is connected with the death of Jesus. In John 12, Jesus says that he's like a, a seed that falls dead into the ground, so he, he says in his uh, allusion to it, it's uh, not an exact uh, uh, similarity in the metaphor, but he, he says that a seed falls into the ground, and that's like his death, and he will there abide alone, but he will burst forth into much fruit. And I think the idea of that is that the cross and his death is what brings forth so much glory to him, so much fruit. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, kindness, patience, etc., that is brought forth in us, not by any steel-willed forcing of ourselves, but by our response to what we are here meditating upon, him there. And this is, quite simply, how that event that happened 2,000 or whatever years ago really does affect us now in the complexity of human life in the 21st century. Notice that in John 12 how Jesus says that he would abide alone when he died, but then he would burst forth into much fruit. And that loneliness of his death is, I think, brought out in chapter 16, verse 32, when he says, you're going to be scattered and you will leave me alone. But I'm not alone because the Father is with me he has weighing on his mind <clears throat> the loneliness of, of the cross and really that's how it was you imagine him uh, walking the uh, Via Dolorosa the, the final walk towards crucifixion there was no one coming out of the crowd as far as we know and patting him on the back there was nobody shouting out thank you Jesus he, he was alone really um, and that loneliness which he felt 
I think puts all our experience of and complaint of loneliness into its correct perspective. But the point is that because of that lonely death, that seed alone in the ground, in terms of John 12, much fruit is brought forth. That is the motivation for all our spirituality. In verse 12, love one another as I have loved you. And he goes on to define his love for us. Verse 30, 13, greater love has no man than this, than that a man lay down his life for his friends. So then, the fact that Jesus died for us, this is the definition of the love of Christ. And in fact, whenever you come across that phrase, the love of Christ, it's usually referring in some way to his death. The love of Christ, Paul says, constrains us. It gets a grip upon us so that we respond. Where is the motivation to love? To love enemies. Where is the motivation to forgive? It's okay going to a psychotherapist and getting some help in issues like anger and whatever, but I've never seen any of those self-help books, people reading them, people going for series and sessions of therapy for months or years, I've never seen it really transform a person. The understanding of certain psychological processes can help. Without question, it can help uh, to sort of cope with bad behavior towards you. But the motivation to proactively love enemies, I believe, can only come from our experience of the love of Jesus for me. And as I say, that love of Christ is supremely his, his death upon the cross. So then, we have been chosen, verse 16, again in the uh, continuation of the idea of the vine, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you, which incidentally, the Greek word eteka, um, is, is apparently, so called C.K. Bowett reckons, uh, a reflection of the Hebrew verb samak, which was used about the ordination of a disciple as a rabbi. Uh, so these blokes who were like hardly literate, fishermen, etc., he's saying, you are now the new rabbis of the new community, but that's just in passing. He says, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and ordained you, that you should go and bring forth fruit, and your fruit should remain. So he has not chosen us. Sorry, we have not chosen him, he chose us. And that's again, I think, uh, an allusion to the way that so people usually chose their rabbi. And he says, no, I chose you, so that you should bring forth much fruit. But as I said before, the bearing of fruit in John's thought is nearly always connected with our response to the crucifixion, to our response to the death of Jesus for me. And yet he says, I chose you, that you should do that. So there's an element to which he simply decided, by pure grace, not because we were potentially better than the guy next to us, but I just chose you. This is his grace. It's all worked out, of course, in the, the actual fact that Jesus died for me. So it's not as if God said to us, Hey you, Duncan, or whoever, you, would you like my son to die for you in the way that he died, so that you might then be able to go and bring forth fruit for me? Would you like to live forever because my son died for you? If you would like that, that's fine. 
I think every one of us would have looked at the crucifixion and what it really entailed and would have said, no, just give me 70 or 80 normal years uh, on this earth and that's enough. We are not spiritually functional enough, I think, to see wider. But it's not like that. He took the initiative. He died for us. And like it, not like it, we have been called to that. We have been chosen. There is no question about that. And he has taken the initiative and he has done it and presented it to us. It's rather like somebody making you a very expensive present that took them a long time to make. And you didn't ask them to do it, but they do it and come around and present it to you. And you can hardly say, nah, I don't want it, thanks. You've been given it. And you can't just say, no, I don't want it. It's been prepared for you. And so this is the position that we are in. And what is there to do but respond? Thank you. It's unexpected, but that's how it is. This is his whole grace to us. And in that sense, I think that is the connection between predestination and grace. And when Paul starts talking about predestination in Romans, he doesn't just turn over a page or... Uh, go down his scroll a bit further and uh, start thinking, oh yeah, okay, I'll write to them a little bit about predestination. It's all in the context of grace, of trying to persuade them that you are saved by grace. That really, this is it. Yes, God chose you for no, no reason, but just by grace. And what can we do but to respond?